Reynold wanted me to remind you about Life Point groups that are starting. Um, some of them have maybe have already started one or two, and the rest of them are kicking off. There are about 20 or 21 or so of them on our website. When we were younger and smaller, we used to make these little brochures that uh, that we would hand out uh, kind of on the Sundays around the beginning of Life Point groups, but. Um, we kind of suspected that maybe you guys weren't reading them. And so all of that information is on the Internet. And so we want to push you to the Internet. That is, a, uh, that is where all, our website all, has all that information. And if there are any changes, we can update that a lot quicker than we can a printed piece of paper. Reynolds says this often, and I just want to reiterate it, that gathering together as a church for worship on Sunday morning is vital to your soul. You need it. You need it. Obviously, just attending church is not what makes you a Christian. We're justified by faith through grace alone in Jesus. But gathering together in corporate worship, listening to a qualified person and established leadership, preach the word of God is essential to your soul. But it is not enough. We need to connect with one another in in relationship and community and kind of peel back some of the layers that all of us have. And so really encourage you to, to consider joining a LifePoint group. And, and then also realizing it is we're a young church, we certainly want to increase the numbers of LifePoint ch- uh, groups that we have as we grow. So if there's not something that kind of is sort of in your uh, sweet zone, maybe you would consider joining the church if you're not already a member and, and, and helping to lead a LifePoint group in the future and helping us grow and contribute to this ministry. So check that out. It's on our website under ministries, LifePoint groups. Everything is there. You can contact the leader directly. So that's that. Well, it is it's such a joy to be here today. The worship this morning was so rich and full and, and pointed us to the cross. And there are just these times when we gather together, when I in particular sort of have, you know, when you just kind of can get outside of, your little, outside of yourself a little bit and God gives you a little peek of how good he has been to you. And this morning was just one of those moments when I just was overwhelmed with gratitude for this place and you and my family, and what God has called me to do. Uh, It is an extravagant, ridiculous amount of grace that God has poured out on me. Uh, I formerly was a rebellious, self-absorbed, prideful, lustful sinner, and God, in his his really abundant kindness, uh, snatched me as I was running headlong away from him and has been very patient with me over the past Uh, decade and a half or so, now coming on 20 years, I guess, since I became a Christian and has seen fit in a strange act of kindness to make me a minister of the gospel that I uh, rebelled against for so many years. And uh, I used to want to be quarterback for the San Diego Chargers, and that, that just never went anywhere. And and really, uh, I'm just so thankful to be uh, a pastor and a preacher of the gospel. And I'm just so thankful to Jesus. And I love, I just love, I love, I love being with you. So with that, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Psalms, these Psalms are in the Old Testament. If you're not that familiar with the Bible, about midway through the Old Testament, we'll have the scriptures on the screen if you're not that familiar with the Bible or you don't have one. If you don't have one, by the way, we have a few on the back that you can take, keep as your own. If you are, 
uh, if you do have a Bible, and if you're a Christian, I really encourage you to get in the habit of bringing your Bible to church and, and using it as a time when you can flip through it and learn where the books of the Bible are. That's really the, one of the primary things early on in my Christian life that helped me become more familiar with God's Word as I would flip through it on Sunday mornings. And so I encourage you to do that. We're going to be in Psalm 73 today. As you know, we have for the past few weeks this summer just done some standalone messages out of the Psalms. And our plan is, in fact, most of what we do here at Crosspoint is to preach through books of the Bible. We've done many of them since the church began. We did uh, last fall in Nehemiah, an Old Testament book, and then we just recently this spring and summer finished up verse by verse through Colossians. And this summer we're taking uh, a little bit of a pause before we start our next series, and we're just looking at some standalone psalms. And so we're going to look at all of Psalm 73 today. We'll probably do that a few more weeks until we move into our new building. When we move into our new building, our first Sunday there will be kind of a celebration Sunday. Uh, and then probably the next Sunday, I thought about doing a little intro to Crosspoint, but I thought there'd be no better way to introduce newcomers to Crosspoint than to just begin what we would normally do, which is preach through a book of the Bible. So probably the second Sunday of our new location, we'll start a series in 1 Corinthians and we will work through 1 Corinthians verse by verse all the way through. I, I'm not sure how long it will take us. Probably about six, seven months. Probably through the spring of the next year. So that's where we'll be. So kind of get a head start and start reading 1 Corinthians for yourself. It's a beautiful book. It is full of people who are absolutely just absorbed with all sorts of craziness. But yet God loves them anyway. Kind of like us. And so it will be really appropriate for us. But today we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 73. And... The title of the message today is, Is God Enough? You know, I like capitalism, sort of. I think it's probably the best form of economic government or whatever the word is that you would, the economic system. But you know, it has its downsides. We, we are the victims and uh, co-conspirators in this continual thirst for more. Advertisers aim millions of dollars at our hearts and this sort of hole in our soul that continually wants more, that never seems to be satisfied. Just take cell phones for an example. Uh, You know, you get the new latest cell phone and then within six to eight months there's a new version of that same cell phone. And that thing that was just so amazing just a few months or maybe at the most a year before, doesn't it just all of a sudden become obsolete? Like, 2G, 1G, now there's 3G, there might even be 4G. I don't really even know what G stands for, but i got to have it. And we just, you know, we, now we can get everything on our cell phones and just a continual thirst for more that exists in our culture. We are a people that are addicted to upgrades, aren't we? Upgrades. Upgrades. I mean, the next version, we've got to download it, we've got to get it, we've got to get the bigger TV, the better model of the car, the extra this or that, because God forbid we have to watch our college football games in regular TVs that are not HD as if the player is sort of jumping out of the screen into your living room. It, I think, is signified most by a song that is well before the time of many of you in this room, but if you... Uh, were alive in the 70s or before, you certainly remember that strange British rock musician 
who was part of a group called Rolling Stones. His name was Mick Jagger, one of the weirdest guys on the planet, by the way. And they sang this song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. But I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no... I'm sorry for putting that song in your mind. You won't be able to pay attention. But that song, and I'm sure it was talking about lots of unrighteous things, that song, I think, captures well the sentiment of the modern American soul. And against that backdrop, we're going to read an ancient song written by a man named Asaph. And in this ancient song, we call it a psalm, he goes through a journey of faith where he ultimately discovers that God is enough. So let's read Psalm 73. I'll read and then we'll pray and then we'll go back through and work our way through Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Lord, we come to you now with great humility, with a strange combination of gladness and gravity, joy and seriousness. And we confess that we, as a people, believe that your word is completely true. It's, it's the very thing that you wanted the writers to write down. And you, supernaturally, through the centuries, have preserved it for us. And in your grace, have translated it into our native tongues so that we might read this today, not just as moral principles, or a guidebook on how you want us to live, but these are the very words of God. They are like a two-edged sword that pierces us in our pride, in our arrogance, in our indifference, and they split us in two. And they lay us naked before you in total vulnerability. So, Lord, as we come to these words now, Lord, would you settle us down? We are addicted to sitcoms and tidbits of information and scrolling news tickers and instant things. And to hear your words, we need to slow down. So, God, would you help us slow down? And, Lord, for the person that is in this room that does not yet know you as Lord, God, would you, in your kindness, cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God, not through a persuasive sermon, not through the promise of some better life, God, because that is not the gospel. Would you set their hope on Jesus because He alone is our hope? And for the person that thinks that they have done that, but their life does not line up with that truth, God, would you, would you come in like a flood and would you let them see you and all that you call them to and would they respond in repentance and faith and trust? And God, for the rest of us that have already done that, God, would you give us perspective? Would you rouse us to worship? God, would you... Would you brush away the dust and the scales of life that build up so easily? And God, would we settle on this fact today as we are people that pursue so many things? Would you settle in our hearts this fact that you are enough for us? And God, as we leave this room today, I pray that everyone, everyone in this room, boy, girl, young, old, not yet born again, born again, encouraged, discouraged, all of us, God, would say, surely the Lord has spoken to me. I pray these things in the priceless name of Jesus, who alone is worthy of our praise. Amen. I see four things in this psalm that I want to bring out to us. The first is that when God is not enough, remember our question is, is God enough? 
The first thing I see in this psalm is that when God is not enough, we lose perspective. Go back to verse 4 there, where Asaph is, is in this position. He's reflecting back on a time in his life because at the beginning he's saying, God has been good to me. I almost slipped, so he's looking retroactively back on his life. And he says there in verse 3, I was envious of these arrogant people that I saw that seemed to be prosperous and they were wicked. And in verse 4 through verse 12, he enters into this sort of delusional misinterpretation of the reality around him. And he says some, some really some kind of crazy things like these people, they don't feel any pain. Their, their bodies are, and it kind of sounds strange to us in our modern language, they're fat and sleek. How can they be both there? I mean, come on. Is there, what they mean there in Hebrew language is that they're just ready. They're strong. They're, they're like an animal who's ready for the slaughter, and they always seem to be the most healthy in the group. And he just goes on there for about, uh, about 4 to, to, to 12, about 10 verses, just sort of, just sort of misinterpreting reality. Because in this moment, he is sort of lusting after, he is striving for something to fill, whether it's temporal success or whatever it is, to fill his heart's desire. And that causes him to be completely unsatisfied with where he is in perspective to where everybody else seems to be. Let's be honest now. Is there somebody in your life, maybe they're even in this room, don't look at them right now. That just, <laughs> let's be honest, you just kind of wish every now and again they'd trip. And they just, they're just, the, they, they were, just seem to have the Midas touch. Everything they touch, it, they touch just seems to turn to gold. They just, nothing is hard for them. They're the person that can just, they just walk in, they get the job, they just go, they get the connection. This, this thing seemed to work out for them while you, on the other hand, everything just, it's like, oh, it's just a arduous struggle for everything and what that does in our heart is it just sort of causes us to be sort of envious and and just jealous of how God is is seemingly blessing them and not blessing us I think in this age of social media we are particularly vulnerable to us to this type of thing are we not told you a couple months ago I'm confessing I'm a little bit of a Facebook stalker and I do it kind of as sort of a thing to sort of pastorally to just see how people are doing to kind of gauge Honestly, <laughs> to gauge what is important to our hearts. But every now and again, I'll just see some pictures, you know, on Facebook. Cute little children, vacation at the beach, you know, birthday party in the wonderfully landscaped backyard. <laughs> you know, you're just like, <sighs> I mean, nobody ever puts pictures on Facebook when they're just waking up in the morning, right? <laughs> Like, this is my eight-year-old when he spilled his milk and his cereal, and I yelled at him, click, post that. (laughs) Nobody does that. We all put our best foot forward, do we not? This was Tuesday morning when life was horrible. Put that out there for public consumption. (laughs) And so what happens is when God is not enough, These little snippets that are not a total picture of reality of other people's lives are presented to us and the enemy comes in because he's like a lion seeking whom he may devour all the time. And he teams up with our broken flesh and 
our idolatry and our insufficiency in God and he speaks lies to us saying, see, 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 that person's got it all together and you don't. Here's my point. Is that if that's sort of a constant drumbeat of your soul, that may very well be an indication that you were like Asaph in the beginning of this psalm. God is not enough for you. I'm not saying that you're not yet a believer in Jesus or born again. I'm saying that there's maybe still some idols in your heart that need to be laid down. I know there are in mine. I know there are in mine. When God is not enough, we lose perspective. Secondly, when God is not enough, we think he owes us something. Okay, so in verse 4 through 12, he goes and he just sort of misinterprets his reality and speaks about all these people who seem to be, you know, prospering. And we'll, in just a moment, talk about how right perspective comes and how they actually get their due eventually. But he misinterprets reality and then he sort of turns the scope or the, his gaze from these people who he is jealous of. And then he sort of turns it to himself and, and he even misinterprets his his own situation. Asaph goes from incorrectly interpreting the world around him to incorrectly interpreting himself. Listen to what he says in verse, verse 12. He says, Behold, these are the wicked. All is at ease. They increase in riches. So he's, his gaze is outward and he's misinterpreting other people. And that's an opportunity for idolatry to him. And then he looks at himself and he gets a little self-righteous. Listen to this. In verse 13 he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I mean, come on, God, I, I have, I've sort of done it right here. And certainly you sort of owe me because I have lived more righteously than these wicked people who around me seem to be prospering when I am still struggling. And the point is here is that when God is not enough, we tend to think that he owes us something for our relative morality compared to other people. You owe me God. You owe me. Because I'm not doing what that guy's doing. And he seems to be getting blessed, whereas I seem to be struggling. This is a problem with, I think we've all sort of been indoctrinated by the weakness the gospel that is not the weakness of the message that is preached in many American churches that really teaches kind of a moralistic deism. It's sort of a self-righteousness. It's a self-justification. Is Be good, little Johnny, and God will be good to you. God helps those who help themselves. And preachers all across this country preach that type of subconscious message and everybody eats it up like it's in the Bible. Like, well, certainly that's in the Proverbs somewhere. God helps those who helps themselves. But that is 180 degrees in the opposite direction of Scripture, which is that God helps those who can't help themselves. And so we develop this sort of debtor mentality with God. God, I was the one who went to VBS. I, I got in some Sunday school time. I pretty much stayed in church. I mean, there was a couple of years in college there, fraternity. I mean, whatever. It was a little rough. But after that, I came back. I'm a pretty good guy. God, I'm a pretty good guy. Now occasionally, I mean, I'm signing up. Riddle. I, got, I already got my card filled out for the Highland team. You owe me, God. Because the moment then for that person, when you approach God with this, I have got clean hands. 
I, I, I am entitled to some sort of blessing from God. You know what that does to you? The moment life falls apart, the moment it doesn't go well for you, and friends, it, at various times in every person's life in this room, it will not go well for you. The moment it falls apart, the moment the call comes from the doctor and the report is positive for cancer or the moment the child gets sick or the moment the marriage hits a rough spot or the moment you don't get the job, then what we do is we say, God, you owe me. God, I, I, I stored up all these good works so that now you are, you are in debt to me, God. And what happens to many, many people is they've been preached and taught this false view of the Scriptures, this moralistic deism where if you be good, little Johnny, then God is obligated to be good to you in a way that is false. We think that God, meaning God's goodness to us, is Him sort of blessing us, causes people to walk away from the church. Friends, we can't put God into our debt. Romans 11.35 says that who is He that He should receive a gift that He might be repaid? Honestly, in your heart, you sort of have that arrangement with God. You owe me. I planted a church, God. Look at this. I got a full room of people. I'm doing stuff for you, Jesus. Certainly things should work out for me. It's not the way it works. I'm not saying God doesn't bless his people, but he blesses them in ways that go far beyond just temporal blessings. Sometimes. He leads them headlong into suffering and pain so that the witness of their life would be that the things of this world are passing away. You see, friends, that's the problem with the health and wealth, health and wealth prosperity gospel that I rail against. It is no gospel at all because what it points to is if you just have enough faith, then God is obligated somehow to move you. That's the problem with much of the Pentecostal and charismatic wing of the church. And by the way, I believe in the operation of the gifts with caution and with order and not with craziness, but the wing of the church, that kind of this faith movement, it is no gospel at all because it teaches people that if you will stir up enough faith in you, then your faith, your faith is the key to God moving in this universe. And friends, that turns the message of the Scriptures on you rather than on a sovereign, providential, good God. That is not the gospel. That's why you need to avoid, like the plague, a vast majority of the TV preachers out there. Most of them are preaching rubbish. They're charlatans. Stay away from them. Selah. The real gospel is, is that God, at times, sends difficulty and trouble and blessing. So that in each situation, depending on his goodness and providence, the goodness of Christ would be displayed over and against the things of this world that are passing. When God is not enough, we think he owes us something. Number three, being in the presence of God is where right perspective begins. So he goes through, verses 4 through 12, he goes through this sort of complaint, this misinformed perspective of reality about those around him who seem to be 
who seem to be prospering, and, and, and they are, at least in this particular season of their life. And then he sort of turns it inwards, and he says, God, I, I, look, I, I've done better than these guys. Certainly you owe me something, God. And then a transition happens in verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Point number three is, is that being in the presence of God, and Asaph enters the sanctuary, we don't know exactly what he meant by that. It's not necessarily a building or the temple or church, but just in this place where his spirit was postured towards God, then he began to get the right perspective on the things around him. And I see three different levels of where he, where he starts to receive right perspective. The first right perspective that he gained was on the evil around him. The first right perspective he gained was on the evil around him because the wicked around him probably were prospering to some degree. And so some of us might pause there and say, well, will God ever be just? Will God ever sort of make things right? And friends, let me assure you, because I realize that there are people around us that are wicked, that seem to be prospering, and that is difficult to deal with. Rest assured. Rest assured that God ultimately will be justified in all things. Listen to this scripture out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. This is the Apostle Paul talking. He says to the church there in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, he says to them in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions. And in the afflictions that you are enduring. So he's saying, hey, you guys are doing a great job. You're standing up amidst persecution and affliction. In other words, there's people around you that seem to be triumphing over you or getting the best of you. But you are standing up. And then he moves into a beautiful and haunting passage about how ultimately the wicked will be judged. This should cause Christians to take heart that God ultimately will be vindicated in all things. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. I mean, listen, just put that in the prosperity gospel pipe and smoke it. I mean, what God is, what, what God is saying through Paul there is saying that, that it is evidence of God's goodness and righteousness that you are being counted worthy to suffer for his name. That's 180 degrees in the opposite direction of your best life now. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay, listen to this, because eventually there's coming a day. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When, this day's coming, we don't know when, but when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they 
will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work, for good for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, take comfort in the fact that God ultimately will be vindicated. There is no act of rebellion. There is no terrorist. There is no cheat. There is no scandal. There is no secret sin that ultimately will one day not be judged righteously by God. His Holiness will be vindicated. All things will be set straight. Every sin that has been sinned against you will be made right on that day. And some of you may ask, well, what about Christians? Are they sin too? Will they be punished? Will Christians be punished? Because ooh, as I read that, I was kind of like, I, I'm sort of, I got a little bit of that in me too. I'm, I've got some wickedness left in me. Well, friends, that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the gospel. You see, the gospel is that all of us stand, we are all the wicked. We all stand before God, unrighteous, rebellious. And the gospel is, is that for those that repent and believe in Jesus, Jesus takes their sin. He bears their punishment on the cross so that those who believe in Jesus, who trust in him, he becomes the wrath-absorbing substitute for them. And so, friend, if you have not done that yet, listen, the world is divided into only two types of people. The type of people that Paul was addressing there as the Thessalonians, who were already Christians, and then those people that will receive that ultimate judgment by Jesus. Which group are you in? The the people that have, have, have received Christ as their Lord who have repented and trusted in Jesus as the sole sacrifice for their right standing of God, their punishment that justly could be theirs was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That's the gospel. God is not just some sort of, ah, never mind. He's, he, can't, he can't be bribed with good works. He gets justice all the time. And for your sins and my sins, if we believed in Jesus, justice happened on the cross. And Jesus satisfied the justice of God there once and for all. But for everyone else, justice coming. If you repented and believed in Jesus, if you have, let that stir your heart towards worship to God. If you haven't, today is the day, friend. Today is the day. We're not, we're not just here to get through a church service and move into a new building so we can be the cool kids on the block. We don't care anything about that. I hope you know that. Because you can look good on a Sunday morning, but you can be a thousand miles from God. Have you repented and believed? Have you done that? I don't care about anything else. I don't care about getting through the rest of this message or finishing out Psalm 73 or moving into 1 Corinthians. If we just sort of preach above the heart to get to the gospel, if we, if we never mention the fact that there are sinners among us in this room today who have not truly been born again, friends, we are, we are spinning our wheels for nothing. So have you repented and believed? Listen, we're not going to make you raise your hand and fill out a card and stamp saved on you or embarrass you or just sort of act like all. No, 
We're not going to do that. But I'm appealing to you right now, if you have not believed in Jesus, you are the one, you are part of that group that Paul is talking about, who will receive the justice of God on that day. Don't do it, friends. Don't do it. Don't be among that number. Come to Christ. Repent and believe. Turn from your cherished sins. Come to Christ. Trust in Him. You say, I don't know any Bible. That's okay. You know what I'm saying to you right now. And to Him who has ears to hear, let Him hear. The Holy Spirit comes and He awakens your dead soul. And He gives you the ability to hear what I'm saying and respond. So friends, I don't care if you don't know anything. I don't care if this is your first day in church. I don't care if you grew up in church and you're trusting in yourself for your righteousness. Right now, for those whom God is saving in this moment, all you need to do is turn and trust in Jesus. Come to Him. Don't rest on yourself. Don't rest on self-absorption. Don't rest on social timidity. Say, oh, maybe later. Now is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Repent and believe. Even right now. Right now where you're sitting, trust. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. There's this beautiful quote. I wasn't intending to read this, but I've, my Bible, all the little flyleaf part of it, and I've got these greasy Italian hands, and my Bible's all messed up and falling apart, and it looks like a wreck. But I, all in my Bible, I've got these quotes from these great preachers in history, and it's filled with Spurgeon quotes that I write. And in this sermon in London, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher back in the 1800s. In London, probably my favorite historical figure beyond the biblical figures in church history, the type of pastor I want to be. And this is what he said in a sermon called All of Grace. He said, meet me in heaven. Meet me in heaven. But this, this language is going to be so archaic, archaic to us. Like, oh, that's so fundamentalist. No, listen to, the, listen to the heart. And this is my heart. And I believe that if you don't know Christ, this is the heart of the Holy Spirit to you today. Meet me in heaven, he says. Do not go down to hell. There is no coming back again from that abode of misery. Why do you wish to enter the way of death when heaven's gates are wide open before you? Do not refuse the free pardon, the full salvation which Jesus grants to all who trust Him. Do not hesitate and delay. You have had enough of resolving. Come to action. Believe in Jesus now with full and immediate decision. Take with you words and come unto your Lord this day, even this day. Remember, O soul, it may be now or never with you. Let it be now. It would be horrible that it should be never. Farewell. Again, I charge you, meet me in heaven. Come on, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you've been hiding behind a religious facade. I don't care if you've been a member of this church and we unwisely let you into this membership before you were born again or you, were, you just wandered in this room today. Come to Christ. The wrath of God will be vindicated. He will pour out His justice against all human rebellion. The stakes are high. You don't need to learn how to manage your anger or be a better husband or have a better job. You need Jesus. Come to Christ today. Come to Christ. Repent and believe, even as I'm speaking now. Look to the cross and realize there that for whosoever believes in Him, God poured out His justice on Jesus so that you might be forgiven. Well, that took me off script a little bit. But it gives us the right perspective on evil around us. And so, friend, if you're a Christian and you're wondering when God will ultimately be justified, 
Learn to lean into the inevitability of the victory of God. Learn to lean in the, into the inevitability of the victory of God. You know what I do a lot in my mind? When I'm distressed about the way my life is going, the country's going, the world is going, I sort of fast forward to that day when Christ is king. He is king now, but when his kingdom becomes completely effectual in all of the universe and every evil power is thrown down, that, that eternity with him, and I just sort of work backwards from that and realize that's where I'm going. Secondly, he gives us a, a right perspective on our own rebellion and sin. I mean, he says, he says there in, in uh, Psalm 73, that says, or verse 21 and 22, remember he talked about in verses 13 and 14, he was sort of like mad because God wasn't sort of repaying, repaying him for his relative goodness in comparison to everyone around him. And then he began to get right perspective on the evil, how God would be justified. And then he began to get right perspective on himself. He says in verse 21 and 22, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You see how his perspective is changing as he's coming face to face with God. He's saying, you know what? God, you don't really owe me anything. I was brutish towards you. So being in the presence of God, we're still under point three here. Being in the presence of God is where right perspective begins. It gives us right perspective on the evil around us, knowing that God will eventually triumph completely and fully and eternally. It gives us right perspective on ourselves, realizing that we, we often act so brutish towards God. And then thirdly, it gives us right perspective around with other Christians that we unjustly judge and criticize. Listen to the words of one of my favorite Puritans. I love the Puritans. Most of them lived in the 15 and 1600s. This one's name was Richard Sibbs, one of my favorites. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And in this book, he's talking about dealing with Christians, other Christians, and people in your world that just drive you crazy. And they're kind of like, you know, just, uh, he's the guy that's posting all the cute pictures of his little kids on Facebook. And as I say that, I come to conviction because I posted some cute pictures of my kids yesterday on Facebook. I am, that, I am that guy for you right now. So extend the grace of this quote towards me as I read it. This is what Richard Sibb says about other people who just get under our skin. He says, the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. I love that. That's old Puritan language. The Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that that spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful dispositions. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The Church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. Isn't that good? <laughs> you smoky, offensive souls. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that, we would, we, that God would give us that same merciful disposition. That God would give us that perspective of other people in our life. That we would be gracious towards them. So now the fourth point. Let's summarize. When, first point, when God is not enough, we lose perspective. Secondly, when God is not enough, we think he owes us something. Thirdly, being in the presence of God, entering the sanctuary of God, is where right perspective begins. And then finally, the fourth point, 
he arrives at the conclusion that God is more than enough. God is more than enough. Listen to his words again in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, Asaph gets to this point where he concludes that, yes, God is enough. God is enough, that God is the strength and portion of his soul forever. There's nothing in this earth that he desires besides God. But let's be honest. You may read this and you may say, you know, uh, there's no way I could ever get to that point. I mean, even as you've been speaking, Brad, the Holy Spirit's been convicting me of just how my heart is tugged in so many different directions. I understand. Believe me, I understand. And in conclusion, I just want to encourage you with reading to you about the conversion of Augustine, one of the early church fathers. He is one of the most important men in the history of the church. He lived in the late 300s, early 400s. He was the bishop there of North Africa. And his thought, I mean, he was centuries ahead of himself. He was, his writings still today uh, are, are some of the most influential things in the church. Augustine, as a young man, was trained to be a rhetorical speaker and lawyer and His father passed away. They had no interest in his spiritual growth. His father did not. His father passed away when he was 16, and that really caused a lot of bitterness in him, how his dad really didn't care about his spiritual growth as he reflected back on his life, but only wanted him to succeed. As I read that, it sort of convicted me about how many Christian dads in our our culture just want their kids to be great in sports or get into the best school, and all the while they care not about their spiritual development. Just a little tidbit of conviction for us dads. We want our boys to throw fastballs, but we never talk to them about Jesus. And Augustine, that kind of bitter relationship with his father, sent him on a road towards licentiousness and just sin. And even though his mother was praying for him for many, many years, he was caught up in carnality and, and sexual lust and just sort of gave himself up to, to indulging in every sort of temptation, especially, especially sexual immorality, from the age of about 16 all the way to the age of about 31 where in his late 20s and early 30s, he began to listen to the preaching of another famous church father, uh, Ambrose of Milan, who was preaching the gospel. And it was the first time, really, that Augustine had ever heard it. And the Holy Spirit, over the course of several years, was working on Augustine's soul. But Augustine could never seem to let go of his cherished sins of sexual immorality. He just couldn't do it. And he was almost getting to a point of insanity because he just couldn't seem to ever really turn loose of his cherished sin and turned completely to God to a point where God truly was enough in his soul. And this is a uh, telling of Augustine in his book Confessions, which is a classic in in, uh, Christian literature written. It's kind of his confession to God. This whole book is sort of his autobiography and a big, long prayer to God. And in this book, he recounts his conversion at the age of 31. And here, again, remember, he's hearing the gospel preached over the course of several years, and he's struggling with his own flesh that he just can't seem to conquer. 
And he's beating himself up for it. He writes in his book, Confessions, There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fist and locked my fingers and hugged my knees. So he's in, he's in distress almost to the point of insanity because he can't seem to get to a place where Asaph is, where Asaph says that, God, you are enough. I forsake all of my idols. You are enough. And he goes on to write, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once, I heard the singing of a voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated the refrain, repeated the refrain take it and read, take it and read. At this, I looked up thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. I do not recommend this as the way that you uh, completely give... He's playing Bible roulette. He hears a little kid singing in the garden... Apparently, whether it was an angel or whether it was some little kid, take and read, take and read. And he says, I'm going to go read the first verse I lay my eyes on. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius, his friend, was sitting, seized the book of Paul's epistles and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling or drunkenness. Not in lust or wantonness. Not in quarrels or rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature or nature's appetites. Romans 13, 13 through 14. I had no wish, he says, to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. And he goes on to write later on about that moment. He says, Oh, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid. Listen to this lying young man who is battling, battling with besetting sin. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter. Than all pleasure. So, friend, if you are battling with this, if you cannot in any way identify with Asaph's words that God could one day be the thing that you desire above all other things on this earth, be encouraged by the testimony of Augustine, who I dare say battled more fiercely than you're battling right now. God broke through. I'm not saying that you're going to have a conversion experience like Augustine, that you're going to hear the voice of a child or an angel. And you're going to play Bible roulette and it's going to open up to a verse that is specifically for you. I'm saying that to encourage you. 
that the only way that God becomes more than enough is when the Holy Spirit breaks through and makes Jesus all together lovely. Will the guys come back to lead us in a song of response? The question, again, is God enough? Is God enough for us? What is your heart thirsting for? The scriptures speak about the unrighteous whose God is their bellies. They're never satisfied. They want more, more, more. But here's the broken deceit. The world's lie. Nothing truly satisfies. Nothing truly satisfies like God. You want a more salary? bigger house, a bigger church with offices actually connected to the sanctuary. (laughs) That'll be neat. You want more stuff, just more, more. More TVs and faster cell phones and more, more. Is God enough? Well, if he's, if he's not for you, then I believe that the Holy Spirit is being gracious to us right now to lift our eyes so that we would be satisfied in God alone. If it has become clear to you that you are not a believer in Jesus, we read that beautiful quote from Spurgeon. Come on, what's holding you back? Repent and believe. Turn and trust in Jesus. If you are a Christian and it like it has become clear to me as I've meditated on this passage and even preached to myself this morning that so often, if I could be honest, God is not enough. The goodness and kindness of the Holy Spirit now is coming to lift our eyes, to overtake us as he overtook Augustine and drive away our inferior pleasures with a pleasure that is sweeter than them all efficiency in God. The Lord, as we come now to respond, to receive communion for those of us that are believers in Jesus, or to receive prayer in some way, Lord, I confess that I am, I identify so much with Asaph. I'm jealous, I'm envious, I'm idolatrous. I want more, I want more. Much of my Christian life could be summed up by God plus this will make me happy. God plus a wife. God plus healthy children. God plus ministry position. God plus a church. God plus a building. God plus this. God plus... But the deal is, is those pluses never satisfy. So, Lord, I confess that I have chased pluses all my life. Oh, God, I was brutish towards you. Lord, would you seize me with your greater pleasure? And would you let me say along with Asaph that you alone are my portion and my strength forever.
Lord, as that hits the saints in this room today, my friends, my dear brothers and sisters, God, would you be so kind as to do whatever you need to do in their lives as well. I pray this in the matchless name of Jesus.